Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to this special edition of Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is a conversation with Alex Gruskin. Some off-season stuff that I'm really proud of and I think you guys are going to enjoy. Essentially, Monday Match Analysis Awards were earlier this week on Monday. If you haven't checked those out, please do. I think it's the, the best way to just put a bow on the 2023 tennis calendar year. But I'm not quite ready to just start looking to next year and, and making predictions. This is kind of in the middle. What I wanted to do was go through every single player in the top 30, which is what we did because, you know, week to week doing this show, there can be some weeks I only cover two players or four players and uh, just wanted to make sure we got to everyone in this show. And I just came up with basically an essential question, a question that we have right now about each and every player. And that gave Gruskin and I the opportunity to, yes, do a little bit of reflection on the season that they just had, but also talk about what that means and how that might per pertain to what we expect from them next year. Again, I think you're going to love it. Part one are the top-ranked players, the higher-ranked guys. Part two are going to be the lower-ranked guys, plus Rafael Nadal and Nick Kyrgios. Um, I will put timestamps in the description, so if you want to hop around, skip players that you're less interested in, uh, you will have the opportunity to do that as well. Without further ado, this is going to be a fun one. Here's Alex Gruskin. We are joined once again by the esteemed editor-in-chief at Cracked Rackets, host of the Mini Break Pod, the Cracked Interviews Pod, and the Great Shot Pod. So many pods, as we always like to discuss. Um, you also can, can hear him on, uh, on T2 as well, which is always a blast. Uh, Gruskin, welcome back to Monday Match Analysis for our mega exciting bonanza off-season podcast where we will go through many, a many, a many, a many of players. It is always a pleasure to be back here. I appreciate you using the word esteemed because I think your commenters are esteemed in their prestige and just the messages they leave. They are the most accurate I think we have in the business. And I discussed that accuracy because on our last episode, a comment that has stuck with me now for about a month is someone goes, no, Gruskin would be a great guy to get a drink slash smoke with. And I read that and my immediate response was, 
man, do I give off smoke vibes? Like, look, I've cheached, I've chonked, I've been around the block, but the slash smoke has really stuck with me, Gil, as I imagine this podcast will with these listeners, because we've got a doozy ahead. Well, they didn't say that about me. Um, <laughs> I'm more, You're a cigar guy. I'm yeah. a cigar guy, yeah. Uh, know, was, have some you, sophistication, man. You, you think the guy who likes to talk about... Uh, whether or not the guy's forehand drop shot is as good as the backhand drop <laughs> shot. You think that that's a weed guy? That's a cigar guy. Come on. I, I, I'm going to use something we discussed when you were on our ATP and WTA award shows at Crack Rackets recently. You described a meal you had had as spicy hummus with a braised short rib in the center. And that describes you better than any cigar or cigarette or smoking vessel would. I just that's you in a nutshell. A man of sophistication. I appreciate that. And that was delicious. Um, we are going to go through all these players. We're going to have two parts, uh, to avoid it getting so long. I don't know if the cutoff of part one is going to be after eight, after 10, we'll have to see based on length, but let's start with number one, Novak Djokovic, who came one set away from the calendar grand slam won the year end championship as well. One of the greatest years of his career. But he is 36. So the question is, how is he still doing this? The answer to that question is with renewed aggression. And we can get into that. But I actually would like to supersede your question with a question for this category, which is if you're Camp Djokovic or a Djokovic fan heading into 2024, what would you actually value more? Him winning another three slams and replicating what he did in 2023 or him walking away with an Olympic gold medal. And now it's just the trophy case is complete because that's the one thing he doesn't have. And it's funny. Some Djokovic fans can be like, well, you know, he was a match and a half or two and a half matches away from accomplishing the calendar slam plus a gold medal as recently as 2021 and certainly hasn't shown any signs of slowing down since. But isn't that the question? is does Djokovic sacrifice other parts of the calendar just to guarantee a peak at the Olympics? Because that's the only thing missing. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what that looks like specifically because it's going to be Roland Garros, Wimbledon, Olympics, if I'm not mistaken. So, I, I mean, actually, somebody commented in the mailbag uh, last week or two weeks ago, I should say. They were like, should Novak skip Wimbledon? It's <laughs> like, I wouldn't advise not playing for a month in yeah. preparation for an event. Uh, but I, I think your, your point is taken because I do think Olympics is the number one priority next year. I think it's what he wants the most. Uh, the, the American in me, who, who maybe doesn't value the Olympics quite as much as, as Novak, uh, maybe doesn't quite relate to it. However, if I'm a Novak fan, uh, I understand how Novak feels about it, and therefore that's what's most important. But by the way, Gruskin, I mean, that's why I'm so I'm so confident that Novak is going to bring a great level to 2024 because I know that the fire is going to be burning because uh, there's this this accomplishment that he probably wants just as much as anything that is still uh, something that he can look ahead to. 
I also think the most dangerous thing that could have happened for the rest of the field is Sinner beating him in that Davis Cup match because now he isn't coming off of glory. He's coming off of a loss, and there's nothing more dangerous in the world than a motivated Novak Djokovic who, if he needed anything to manufacture a little extra juice going to Australia, he has that now. And to go full circle with your opening question, it's how aggressive he can play. The man has perfected this sport. And even if you weren't a Novak Djokovic fan to begin with, you have to appreciate what he does on court every time he steps onto it. There's just a mechanism for him to find a way through every match. And it was fascinating to see Sinner, Elkaraz, Medvedev, and others play through his backhand. I don't want to say with success, but that's where they were finding opportunities to be aggressive because Djokovic was a little bit status quo-y with that backhand down the home stretch. He is dominating people, <clears throat> excuse me, even an Alcaraz forehand to forehand. And the pace he plays with off of that wing now, Gil, that to me is why age 36 Djokovic was able to do what he does because there's not a shot he can't hit but he has perfected what he wants to hit on every point and just everything's still so sharp. Yeah. Biggest I've ever seen him play on his forehand this year yeah. as a whole, I think full body of work. It was the best forehand year I've seen from him. Last one. Cause I don't get to ask you this. I'm sorry. And I won't do this in every category. What's the score between 15 and 23 Djokovic? Like they go head to head. It's a four set match, maybe five. Like I do think 23 Djokovic, he'd find ways to be aggressive. Like I don't think 15 is that much more athletic that like I do. The tennis gap is interesting because Djokovic is better at things now and he can still do it pretty damn long. Yeah. And and there's an argument to be made. If you, if you go like, the 2011 argument, you could be like, no, he's a better big match player now. So if we want to go into this crazy hypothetical world and have the same person play each other, which is a little bit bizarre to begin with, uh, you could, you could be like, look, if Novak played Novak in a Wimbledon final 2023, Novak is probably just gonna maybe have a higher chance of showing up and playing his best. That's Uh, the right surface too. That that's where 23 Wimbledon uh, Djokovic is like, Oh, perfect. Let's go. Surface comes into play, though, in this argument. 100%. Also, nobody talks about it, but like on clay, it's not hard for me. 2011 uh, Djokovic is, is or the guy. Or 15 Djokovic on clay. You're just like, 15 Dude, Djokovic is the guy. It sucks yeah. that you existed with Nadal because, man, you could have had some records. Anyways, I apologize. I was yeah. curious. Um, so, you know, we feel good That's about That's another good one, by the way, for the commenters. Let us know. 15 versus 23. Like, what is the score in your mind? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we feel good about his motivation. We both agree that the Olympics are big. Obviously, there's no sign of decline in terms of his results. Uh, I, I think we're both really high on Djokovic going into next year. Let's talk about Carlos Alcaraz. You also mentioned that Djokovic coming off of a loss is dangerous, and that was certainly the case when Alcaraz beat him at Wimbledon because he went on a crazy run after that. Alcaraz is inverted. He missed the Australian Open, was a, a total uh, buzzsaw, a, a killer from the time he came back to tour Golden Swing February uh, to to winning Wimbledon. And then uh, and then he didn't have a title um, really in the second half. So I mean, right now, that's the question, okay? Um, if we're not we're not trying to summarize this year, we're trying to be in the moment right now. The question is, is Alcaraz's second half concerning to you? It's not. I came up with this analogy as I was preparing for today's show. Djokovic is to LeBron what Alcaraz is to Giannis in the sense that like, you know, again, Giannis is just this marvel. Like I do think from a, if you are a basketball fan, from an athletic standpoint, a size standpoint, like the things Giannis can just do physically, you're just like, how 
this shouldn't be humanly possible. I've seen a lot of things in life. I've never seen anything like this, but I just saw LeBron. And like as as athletically gifted as you are, LeBron was that and skilled in his prime. And it's just like that's where Alcaraz is right now is it's the Giannis to the LeBron argument, which is like Alcaraz is so outstanding. The only reason you would even have a degree of concern coming into the second half, uh, coming out of the second half is in comparison to what Djokovic did or comparison to what Sinner did or even to some extent what Medvedev did. I know he didn't win titles, but he was in every big final down the season's home stretch and like. That's compared to the LeBrons of the current moment. And again, this is a kid who's 20 years old, who for the majority of the season was flirting with a 90% win percentage. And there's like four guys, Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, Borg, who have ever done that for a full season. He was doing that at age 20. There's fewer than 12 guys, 10 guys who have won double-digit slams in their careers. And I think more fans than not would still project Alcaraz to accomplish at the very least that no, I have no concerns for Carlos Alcaraz. He's growing into his body, and yeah. we saw that in the second half. Yeah, he's still in the ascent period of of his career, and it wasn't that bad a stretch. It was, you know, based on his standards. Yeah, maybe there were. It felt a little bit disappointing, but those are crazy standards. And he's learning really quickly. He's a great learner. It's kind of like what I said about Yannick Sinner, and I've been saying this for for a while with him. It's like whenever Sinner suffered a setback, let's say like the Altmaier loss at Roland Garros, and I would get the questions of, you know, the panicky questions like, is Sinner just not the guy? It's like, no, I'll always have confidence in Sinner because he is super committed, very hardworking, uh, like very stable, what you want mentally, the and the assets are there physically, the stuff that you can't teach. So like Alcaraz has all of that. He's going to figure it out, plain and simple. Whatever was going wrong, uh, in the second half, um, I expect him to be a better server next year. I expect him mentally to to be more clutch next year. Um, I also, no, he, sorry, he, did, he did improve this year. Like if, yeah. if you're telling me to look at the, the whole picture, I, I think Alcaraz, after a, one of the best like teenage seasons ever, right up there. He actually got better this year. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's impossible for me to, to feel negative coming in. And I also year. think. What's so fascinating is how people are now playing Alcaraz. They're saying the thing they're trying to take away from him is not his forehand. It's his inside-out forehand. And I think Medvedev, Sinner, Djokovic, they would all rather go forehands cross with Alcaraz than let him camp out in that ad side corner. And all of them are good enough at finding that backhand corner that when they pull the trigger to the ad side, they're finding the Alcaraz backhand. But they are all really making efforts of targeting that forehand. And you're just like, what is Alcaraz going to do this offseason as the adjustment? Is it backhand line, which he can do? Is it more? It's just there. He could do anything. And so it's going to be fascinating to see what's his next wrinkle, because there's clearly one coming. Yeah, I think the forehand went a little bit cold on him in the second yeah. half uh, yeah. compared to it was could be uh, movement related and a hip thing be, or whatever it is. I, and I thought it was the best for coming out of Wimbledon. I ranked it yeah. as the number one forehand in the world. And yeah. then as the next couple months wore on. I'm just like, I eh, actually not all that confident about that anymore. Um, is there anything else? Yeah. I mean, I, and I also think to add on to what you said, I think people are making sure to play an attacking style against Alcaraz. If you sit back and let him control things, uh, you're playing into his hands. Uh, so I expect a reset um, for, for Alcaraz. Let's go to Medvedev. What needs to happen for him to win another major? That's the question. He's at one. He had a good year. 
but he also didn't tack on to that that major tally. He had an exceptional year. Like he had the most wins of any player on the in the ATP tour this year. And he's pretty good against top twenty, top ten competition as well. You look at those totals against top twenty this year, according to Tennis Abstract at least. Medvedev uh twenty seven and twelve. You know, that led all players in terms of total wins. Djokovic is twenty five and five, a better win percentage. He's also twelve and nine against the top ten. Pretty good in a year where only four guys had double digit top ten victories. It is a big three on hard courts. Maybe uh, at this point now a big four with Sinner, where it's just those are the guys. Hard every hard court event's going to run through. Medvedev is that tough and up and out. And watching him closely down the season's home stretch, his forehand's a weapon. Like Jason Goodall made a point to me of saying he thinks Daniil Medvedev actually hits the ball pretty darn big relative to opponents. And you actually watch him step into his forehand the way he had to do down the home stretch against some of the best guys. And man, does he have success when he really wants to whack that ball down the line, move forward behind it, use his length. I know stay the course sounds like a cop out, but the level he played this year wins a slam against anyone not named Novak. Novak's just freaking Novak. So if he can manage to sustain this level two more years, three more years through his late 20s, I do think he will make at least two more hardcore slam finals, and then you just roll the balls out. Fascinating, because that's been my answer for this question uh, for a long time with Medvedev. Like, ever since 2019, uh, before he won a major, that was my answer. Just, nope, he's right there on hardcore. It's going to happen for him. And, it, you know, so far it's happened once for him. I, I'm um, I'm going to change a little bit now, though. Sinner comes forward and Alcaraz comes forward and Djokovic comes forward. He made it to the U S open final Novak. Like it's not acceptable to surrender so much serve and volley success. He was beating Djokovic from the back of the court in the second set handedly. He still lost the second set because you're giving up a tactic. That's a free point. He needs to develop a response to serve and volley to serve plus one approach um, it's just something he needs to try to do. I don't expect him to be Djokovic or Sinner uh, from a return standpoint where he's just going to be able to take the return early. But, man, just try to uh, make a – maybe five feet can be the difference. Maybe six or seven feet forward can be the difference. He's got to figure it out. Well, it's such a fascinating point because of those four, he's the only one you come in with a clear game plan against. The one who you know what you have to do well to beat Medvedev on that day. And even if you do it well, he still may get you. But that is the most fascinating one because you're absolutely right. It's just like, all right, is this just your weakness now? And the very best guys, if they execute their best, they are going to beat you on that day. And that's just, again... You have to be so good at it because even if you're serving and volleying, he can still beat you cross. He's shown that. He can still beat you line. He can still hit that forehand from ridiculous positions as a return on the court. But the best guys make life a little bit easier for themselves. They can keep pace in the other places. And yeah, like Sinner Medvedev's now a real issue for Medvedev. Alcaraz Medvedev, Djokovic Medvedev. Those are real things for him moving forward. So you're right. That is a fascinating thing is what is his next adjustment? Because if it's going to come, it's probably this year. Yeah. I mean, you used to feel great about Sinner Medvedev. It was six. Mm -hmm. It was six zero for Medvedev. And you're like, Sinner doesn't volley. So Daniil's Daniil's an awesome And now it's really not six. (laughs) Like it's six two, but it's like, yeah, but 
those two are like uppercase two. It's yeah. like that. Like yours is a number. His is spelled out because those were a real two. Yannick Sinner is the post U.S. Open center, the center of next year. Yes. Next question. No. No. I. Yes. Next question. Like I've been beating this drum, and you know, longtime listeners of you and I working together. Yeah. They can now have kids. It's been that long. Shout <laughs> out. Um, know that we long took the posture of I will argue for Sinner while you argue for Alcaraz because you need an easy way out and I like to get creative. An argument got real easy down the season's home stretch. I mean, statistically, him, Alcaraz, Djokovic, those are your three guys top 10 in both hold and break percentage. For Sinner, not just to go on the stretch he did down the season's home stretch, but to beat Alcaraz and Medvedev in the same event to win Beijing coming off of a very disappointing loss to Zverev at that U S open for him to do that, for him to go to the tour finals, beat Djokovic, make the finals of that uh, event as well, beating Medvedev again. And then for him to do it at Davis cup in a match that clearly mattered for Novak Djokovic and a moment that stuck out for me from that match, J- Sinner double faults to see the break to Djokovic in the second set for three, one Djokovic cheers. Like, that doesn't happen in 99.9998% of the matches Djokovic has won throughout the course of his career. This one it did because he needed the juices flowing because it mattered to him. And so that's why I value it, even though it's a Davis Cup match, that it came twice in the span of 10 days matters, I think, as well. And just mentally, Yannick Sinner knows he has the level. The only thing he has to do is continue to develop physically. And now that that reassurance is there with the results, you can lock in on that physically and embrace it in a way that if the results weren't there, maybe you're starting to doubt other parts of the process as well. And just, no, age 22, I don't think there are any doubts for Sinner. I think this is who he is moving forward. I I just, I guess we're probably, look, we're probably not as far off as as it sounds. I'm so high on Yannick. I can't say enough about how well he played. Um, By the way, I'm high on Alcaraz too. Like right, if that of, wasn't of course. clear. Yeah. Of course, of course you are. Um, it's just that what we saw post US Open was like uh, dominance. It was Year one. it was yeah, it was Sinner is better than Alcaraz, Sinner is better than Medvedev, Sinner takes it to Djokovic. All I'm saying is is it's not gonna be okay, we're all going to stop playing tennis for a month. Then we're going to go outdoors. We're going to go to Australia and it's going to center is going to continue to just be that, uh, it, that's, it's not how it works. It's never how it works. I have no questions about his game. I love what I'm seeing physically. I love how he's developed his skills and the drop shot and the volley and the serve, and he still has the power. Um, and, and all of that is great. It's just when he goes outside and he loses the confidence and, and the momentum of this. Everything is going to be harder. I anticipate when I do my top 10 predictions that I'm going to pick him to finish in the top five. Um, all I'm saying is I, I don't think, like somebody asked me, is he a bigger threat to Djokovic than Alcaraz at the Australian Open? No, I'm, I'm not there. Alcaraz has still won two majors. He's still been in way more semifinals. The one-time center made a... Uh, uh, a major semifinal. I didn't, you know, it was not the most impressive of runs. Um, so I, I'm just, I think we're going to go a little bit back, uh, a little bit back to normal with Sinner in terms of him being uh, kind of on like the the Medvedev tier of things and maybe less so the Djokovic Alcaraz tier. 
all fair reservations. The highest compliment I can offer is that I no longer have any questions about the tennis. It's yeah. all about physically. Can he make the five hour fight? He, I think he makes an Australian open final. It's either a tight four or he loses a loose fifth, six, two to Djokovic. Like that's what the level he's at. And if he does any better than that, it means this off season, he absolutely nailed the physical development part, which again is my only remaining question. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, Maybe there's some mental development in the yeah. really, really big matches at, at majors. But he beat Djokovic in a Davis Cup, I, like in a match that mattered. Like you're right. It's Again, not you're Wimbledon. Right. You're it's right. not Wimbledon. You're right. you're right. It's not three out of uh, five as well. That too. Okay, Andre Rublev uh, finishes here at number five. Has he hit a wall here at at five? This is his career high. He reached this in 2020. Or or can he keep going up? And don't think about it. You know, strictly from a ranking standpoint. You know. It, it, I'm not saying, is he going to get to four, number three at, at any point? I'm really saying, can, can he improve as a tennis player? Did you watch Game of Thrones? No. Yeah, this is, I knew this. This is where you're always, it's a blank spot. I had a great analogy lined up. He's the wall, the, and you need a dragon the way the White Walkers had to get through the wall. And those dragons are sinners, Medvedevs, Djokovic's, Alcaraz's. Zverev, to some extent, who have all just those are the dragons who have had his number. Those are the best players in the world. Those are the ones who beat him. Everyone else is going to struggle. And again, part of this question is examining, you know, what do we want out of a tennis player's career? Andre Rublev has made the tour finals four consecutive seasons. He's been one of the eight best players in the world for four years consecutively. This is a guy who's still in his mid-20s, is in the midst, if not at maybe the peak of his powers, but I still don't think, you know, again, maybe there's still 2 3% improvement there for him. I don't think he's ever going to win a slam title. I think he's going to be really good for a really long time. Dare I say a modern-day Ferrer, a modern-day Burdich, who may not have those slam finals, but... You know, again, three quarterfinals for him at the majors this year. He wins his first 1,000-level title. To end it on the ATP Tour finals, note that it did, a really sour note that clouds what was otherwise the best year of his career. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, that said, this is who he's been for four consecutive years now. You know the weapons he brings to the court. If you don't have the physicality to handle that weapon or a weapon of your own to disrupt that as well, you're in trouble against Andre Rublev because he ain't going to beat himself. He is disciplined as hell, even if he gets frustrated still on court. Yep. I don't know if I see another level to him. Do you? I'm really encouraged by this year. I, I've been saying, you know, I've, I've In kind what of ways? seen him. I've seen him as stuck for a while now, but I think the second serve got about 50% better. I think the mental side got about 50% better. And, uh, you know, the crazy thing is neither of those things are yet strengths. Uh, but I think they went from from real weaknesses to uh, maybe slight weaknesses, or maybe he went from below average to average in those areas, or or something of the sort. Uh, I I still look at him and I I actually see some things where he can improve a little bit on the fine margins, and he's very self aware about it. He wants to be faster. He wants to hit his second serve better. Uh, like this year, he brought new people into his team. He, you know, Fernando Vicente is still there, but he brought, you know, new voices in. It just showed me that he's not complacent. He wants more. And I just have a feeling that Rublev is going to have some great moments in the next, in the next three years. Um, he's not going to be somebody who's just like, you know, poor Andre can't get past the quarterfinals. I, I think he's 
I'm just really encouraged by by what I saw this year in in that respect. You feel fair enough? Yeah, absolutely. And again, four top eight seasons consecutively. That is remarkably yeah. impressive. I'm sure fewer than a percent of pro tennis players ever have accomplished that sort of feat. Yep. I could see him beating one top five player, top 10 player. And he had a career high in top 10 wins this season. I could see him beating one in an event. I could maybe even see him beating two. I just don't see the world where he wins three top 10 matches consecutively to win a major. And that's why I think the Ferrer Burdich ceiling comp is probably accurate. That's a really good player, a borderline Hall of Famer. I think, again, sticking in this range will be where he's at for his career. Five through 10, which is a remarkable place to be. Yeah, I don't think he's going to win a major either, but... Um, that's not really my bar for him. He's, you know, obviously trying to make his first major semifinal. I think, uh, you know, the experience of making a major final, that that would be an awesome feather in his cap. So we'll see if he can do those kinds of things. Let's go to uh, Tsitsipas. I'll, uh, I'll go first in answering my question this time. My question is, was this his Medvedev 2022? The year, you know, it, last year, Medvedev, he didn't quite have a... Uh, have a non-top 10 season. But after the Australian Open, he was outside of the top 10. That's just, get, that gives you an idea of what his 2022 was. And Tsitsipas, similar this year, he finishes six in the world, but it was that Australian Open. So we could easily see if Tsitsipas doesn't have a good Australian Open, he's out of the top 10. We could see something like that happen. Um, and I, I kind of do think that it was. It's going to be a similar thing. I think his coaching was a mess this year. Uh, he he tried to do something good with Philippoussis. He tried to bring a new voice in. It ended up being, in his words, too many cooks in the in the kitchen. Then there were issues of indecisiveness, and you know him not knowing exactly what he wants. And probably there was some drama attached to that um, because usually that's just how these things work. Um, Look, do I think he's going to have a stellar backhand return and great backhand defense? No. But Tsitsipas has twice finished year-end number four without a good backhand return and without good backhand defense. Just about being in a good place mentally, competing hard, staying healthy. Like, that's all it's going to take for him. And I just think he has another year where he's able to probably do those things again. And if he does, probably a top five finish at at in the five spot or the four spot. He was one in hold percentage this year. So his floor is only so low. And because when he gets on clay courts, his weakness is minimized in a way where the past two seasons on clay specifically, he's been top 25 amongst top 50 players in break percentage. So, you know, the floor for him from a rankings perspective is only so low. I would also point out one of the best expressions you've ever come up with. There are February and October players and seven of Tsitsipas has historically been a very good February player. No one dominates Rotterdam quite like Stefano Tsitsipas over the past half decade. That said, it's different than Medvedev because Medvedev just does more things on court and can do more things to attack you on various surfaces in a way that Tsitsipas can't. Like on a quicker surface, he is just in trouble because the backhand has not made any sort of measured improvements over the past few seasons. And look, still 25 years old, right? Still in his mid-20s. There's still time for him to improve those things. Again, he his serve forehand combinations, one of the best five we have on the ATP Tour. It minimizes the floor. Do I worry about his ceiling moving forward? I really do. Because, and I won't, 
But I think you could have a fun argument if you wanted. Like, do who do Hubi Hercats and Stefano Tsitsipas have the same ceiling now? Like, are they kind of similar players? Tsitsipas does it on clay. Hercats does it on faster surfaces. There's an argument to be made, yes, that Tsitsipas and Hercats belong in the same conversation. And that just was unfathomable a couple of years ago. And part of this is, look, the field's caught up. Sinner, Alcaraz, Runa, they're all really good, really fast. One-dimensional is not enough in today's game. And I just – how does Tsitsipas change being one-dimensional at this point short of, hey, I'm now two hands on the backhand win? That's my <laughs> issue. Yeah, no, it, you're right. I think the backhand is going to hold him back forever. I'm just saying he can be a top-five player probably with that weakness. Now, if he's burnt out and he doesn't want it all that bad anymore um, – as badly as as you need to want it in order to be yeah. literally one of the top five best players in the world. That's also, it's possible. I wouldn't be absolutely stunned. I'm just saying if Tsitsipas continues to go this direction, which is, you know, downhill and not have any, I'll just say this, like if the rest of his career looks like 2023 looked like post-Australian Open, it's because the fire went out. Like it's all mental there. Uh, it's not because of his backhand return. That that's kind of what I'm saying, you know. But fair. Yeah, but at the same time, I I get what you're saying, which is that what are you going to start beating Alcaraz and Djokovic with with the backhand weakness? Probably not. And I'm with you. The only reason Tsitsipas getting blown out by Alcaraz as badly as he did on clay courts, like that was a huge issue in the French season uh, during the clay court season, was how is Tsitsipas going to solve this? And then it was like, well, he's actually got a bunch of other things he's got to solve first, and then we'll get back to the how do you beat Alcaraz on clay issue. But you're absolutely right. It is all about the mentality because this is a guy who, when locked in, the physicality is never in doubt for Stefano Tsitsipas. And again, that just requires a degree of commitment that if he doesn't want right now, more power to him, but it will impact the results. Yeah, yeah. Can't take any melatonins before you play yeah. Alcaraz. That's step so number one. You, that, that's what you learn. Yeah. Um, okay, Zverev. <laughs> Full circle, sorry. Leave okay. the joke in. Go ahead. He's a drink-slash-smoke guy, though. You got to say that about Tsitsipas. <laughs> drink-slash-smoke. Yes. Um, Zverev at seven. Bounce back year, not you know nothing, uh, nothing spectacular, but a return, definitely a great success because you can't take for granted how hard it is to get back to the top after an injury like that. It's it's never just a given, and I think Zverev showed. All right, I'm back. I'm here again, um, and a year end championship was uh, was in the cards, even though for the first two three months of the season he wasn't himself. So that in itself is impressive. Uh, the question though is. What is the argument at this point that he's going to win a major? Do you do you have one for me? I'm sad to say I do, and I'll be brief with it. Beats Sinner at the U.S. Open. Beats Alcaraz at the Tour Finals. We've seen him beat Djokovic in a significant match, an Olympic semifinal, and play him very close, five sets in the U.S. Open semifinal at the next major event in 2021. He's made a slam final. Yes, the mental issues still appear, but physically, I think he is at a play, not maybe 100%, but probably 97% back to where he was, where it was unequivocally him. And he played Nadal even through two sets of tennis at Roland Garros before snapping his ankle in 2022. I think by the end of the year, the discussion was they're pretty clearly the five best players in the world. In a year where there was a lot of sloppiness outside of those top four, Rublev was the most consistent from start to finish in the year. 
But I think Zverev threatened those top guys in a way Rublev never did. And he did that as soon as within his first 12 months of coming back from this injury. And I've just seen the level from him in a way I haven't seen from anyone else in the field, even a Kasparut, who I know has gotten close, but the way Djokovic Nadal handled him with such ease, like that's an issue for Kasper as well moving forward. I just think with how quickly he returned to this level that the window still has to be open for a guy who, by the way, is still 26. Like, yep. there's a world where he hasn't played his best tennis yet, and I have seen him play the tennis of a guy who's world number one already in his career. I haven't seen Zverev really change anything in five years. So that's my serve? it's my simple no. I don't think the second serve got different or better. I mean, he figured out how to not have the yips. He doesn't but... miss first serve. Like this, he makes 75% of his yes. first serves, which is a yes, great he, does. he was so you're so right to make that point. I apologize for cutting you off. But the thing we don't talk about enough, folks, is that this is a guy with second serve yips that were so bad that his solution was, I'm just gonna make my first serve fucking elite. Sorry for swearing. Uh, okay. but it's just like that was his solution. Is what if I I make my first serve so good that who ca- that I could get away with just being awful in the second serve, and it worked. Like yeah. credit to him, that is an impressive scheme. And I'm glad, and I'm glad you bring that up. It's been something that I've been I've been trying to bang this drum because like commentators need to stop saying when you know they'll be calling a Zverev match, he'll be at seventy two percent, and they'll be like, "Wow, great first serve percentage." It's like, no, that's his average. That's yeah. the normal. <laughs> When he's like 78, that's a good serving set. And when, when he's like, like 66, yeah. yeah, when he's like 66, that's actually a bad serving set for him. So, Means he got like, broken at 5-4 up in the set. <laughs> like you can guarantee it. If it's under 70, that means he's down 15-40, he's serving 5-4, and there's a yipsy second serve coming. Like you're that's the thing for him and Tsitsipas and Medvedev to some extent. And maybe why you fall in love with the next gen 2.0 so quickly. And shameless plug here, but as we look ahead towards 2024, Ed McGrogan editor-in-chief for Tennis.com, has come on the Mini Break podcast to talk about the next-gen crew because it's like, look, the leash is up. Like You are all in your mid-20s now. Even if you were born in 1998, that means you turned 26 in 2024. The rope for improvement, the leash isn't as long as it once was. And yes, the big three has turned into a big one, but you got three other guys in Sinner, Alcaraz, and Runa who are all you know, bit, nipping at the bit to cement their spots at the top of the game. And it is just crowded now in a yep. way it hasn't been in quite some time. And there has to be an urgency for Zverev, for Tsitsipas, even to some extent Rublev, who we talked about. Obviously, Medvedev, your question was slam related. I like 2024 is a massive year for the original next gen crew. It hasn't gotten easier. I don't see it getting easier, and that's why I'm not arguing for Zverev um, when it comes to this question. I, I'm out of arguments. Uh, Holger Runa, why such a large range of outcomes? He was, <laughs> I mean, it's and it's not just this year. Uh, we saw this last year. He was He's on, polarizing. Well, his results are polarizing. I mean, he last year, I'm just going to pull it up right now. Uh, he went on a crazy losing streak after making the Roland Garros quarterfinals. So career breakthrough. Uh, wow, you beat Tsitsipas in Paris. That's huge. He loses one, two, three, four, five, six matches in a row. Uh, doesn't pass the second round until the U.S. Open, where he loses 
that was kind of lucky. Isner withdrew when he lost in the third round. He didn't do anything. And then it's like, oh, uh, indoor hardcourt season, I'm going to make the final at five straight events. Just completely go nuclear explosion of excellence by Runa. And then this year, that was kind of clay court season where he makes his push. Monte Carlo final, Munich title, uh, Rome final, Roland Garros quarterfinal, um, which was kind of a disappointing performance by him. He was kind of out of gas. But still, amazing clay court season. And uh, Wimbledon quarterfinal, that's fine. Just goes on a stretch where he doesn't win matches. He, he wins one match, which is beating FAA in Beijing in the next three months. He wins one match. What, what is happening with that? Well, my question is how much of it was injury-related. But as it relates for Holgaruna, he's an unequivocal A. I, it could be an A minus because of that delta between everything post Wimbledon and the start of the indoor Europe stretch post U.S. Open. But listen to the you know repeat what you said through the first six months. Round of sixteen Australian Open, he held seed there, and what was his first slam with significant expectations? He was one of the five best players in the world during the clay court season. There wasn't a big event that didn't see him reach the semifinals, finals, obviously a little bit short of that at the French Open, but still held seed to the most part at that event. Kid turned 20 years old this year, and there was a time when we were talking about him as one of the five best players on the season. Now, yes, that dropped off at the end of the year, no doubt about that, but to see him recover the way he did against Djokovic, two really tight three-set matches, Hogaruna has it, whatever that it factor is. There's a reason he's polarizing is because there's reasons not to like him. He's edgy. Can I can I say court. can I say it's what that you. it is? Insane Please. ability. Yeah. That's it. Absolutely. Like that that's the he is he's an so, athlete. He is so like he his shorts are not that short by length. His shorts are that short because like, dude, you can't get around these quads. They're magnificent. And right. it's just that movement allows him to do whatever it is he wants to do next. And I just want Holger Runa to realize his backhand is as good as it is because I just think there are times when he when he's aggressive and dictating with his forehand, that's when he's dominating. That is when he's at his best because he's imposing his will. But his backhand is better than just about every opponent that he faces. And I just wish there would be times when he'd be willing to say, okay, you think you can challenge me on this wing? You can't. I'm just going to beat you back. I'm not going to make life harder for myself by trying to find forehands when I don't need to. I guess that's the thing I would say for Holger Runa is I get trying to build that aggressive mentality with the forehand, but he can be just as aggressive off of that backhand wing. And sometimes I don't understand why he doesn't just do that. Or be less aggressive. I, yeah, I, I don't know why 100%. he – I don't know why um... – Can I hypothesize why? Yeah, I think it's building the instinct. I think it's just, I think he was told for years, like, and because he was such a good ranked junior, because he had success futures, challenger levels so quickly, just based on his physicality, he has been told, look, make errors now, but this has to get built into you. Is this aggressive instinct to plan your terms? And I just think we're now at the point where we can actually rope it back and find that middle ground. I think it's physical and mental. That is getting in the sure. way of, of what and you might be right. In what sense do you mean? By and that? by the way, I and by the way, I do think he's been, you know, coached to be as aggressive as possible. I do believe that. Uh I, I think physically we see him get tired all the time. And I don't get it. He works very, very hard in the gym. That is clear. You mentioned his quads, they are immaculate. 
but he he's got bad endurance. It was better in the clay season, but I mean, half the time when I'm analyzing a whole Garuna match, I I'm talking about at one point he is not working points and he has no shot tolerance because he's gassed. So what's happening there? Now I, I think it's just mind is connected to body. Uh, Boris Becker came in and like all he was telling him all match was breathe, breathe, breathe. I think the guy is, uh, I think he struggles to stay calm on the court and I think he exhausts himself. Um, For me, Runa is going to explode if he figures out shot selection and physicality. And those two things are connected because you cannot have good shot selection if you're worried about your physicality failing you. Uh, it's completely fair. I also think there are times when he screams, I'm 20 years old, because physically him and Alcaraz are almost equally gifted. And I don't say that lightly. Like mm-hmm. it, it is remarkable how the two of them scoot around a court and how that athleticism translates into the power and the way they make contact with the ball. The difference is Carlos Alcaraz knows exactly how he wants to dominate you. Hogaruna doesn't know what plan A is. He doesn't know the thing he does best to beat everyone consistently with yet. And you see that experimentation mount itself in almost every point he plays. And when, to your point, the mental, the physicality begins to wear down, which then causes him to wear down mentally, like that's where there's a fatigue in his shot selection. There's just a fatigue in the things that he does. And he do, he's still not, there's some uncertainty. And that's what makes it so fascinating. It's the best mold of clay. And now we just got to mold it into a multi-time slam champion. He's like the only guy I can think of who consistently goes to net and I'm watching and I'm like, why, why are you doing that terrible decision? Yeah. Right? Like everybody, everybody is, doesn't go forward enough. Right. Well, like, well, Taylor Fritz, I think the same thing, but for different reasons. Sure. But Fritz doesn't, Fritz knows, Fritz knows yeah. he shouldn't go up there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like I think every tennis coach in the world is just like, yes, volleys. We love it. Good. That's the right way. And then Holger sometimes comes forward and I'm like, you're going to get past, man. Like you, you stay back. Um, oh, it's beautiful. It reminds me of myself going into a pod where you're like, look, I have the tools. We'll see which way this goes. Like yeah. sometimes I'm going to miss the volley. Sometimes he's going to hit a knifed cross court forehand volley where you're just like, dude, that's the footwork. Whatever that one was, do that one. We got to start going quicker on these guys. Uh, we are out <laughs> of the top eight now. Okay. Hubert Hercotch, will he stay I'm, in the top 10? I'm giving you two sentences the rest of the way. And well, you tell me if you want I'm more also, live. I'm also considering live to making this a two-parter. You don't need to worry about Ooh, that. But, uh, like that. Hubert Hercotch um, made a great push at the end of the year, finishes number nine, almost made the year in championships. Will he stay in the top 10? I think physically he is gifted enough to be a top 10 player. I think he hit his forehand with more aggression down the home stretch of the season than anyone else. And I'm going to swear for a second time, there's sort of a fuck it to who be post us open. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to hit because this season was otherwise so forgettable for who be the most forgettable top 10 season we've seen put together, maybe in the last five years where it just kind of all clicked. He wins Shanghai. Now you're on indoor hardcore events where he can dominate with his servant he just has an ability. Talk about feel, a plan always when moving forward, an ability to knife a half volley just perfectly over the net tape. The backhand is there. The fluidity is there. He has the pack, the, the complete package to be a top 10 player. 
And I still don't think we've ever seen him put together a 12-month, 11-month consistent season. So I'm going to say we have not seen him hit his ceiling yet. Another guy, 1996, turns 28 next year. I think next year's the year where we see him a consistent top 10. Yeah, I just don't know if the forehand is a flash in the pan or not. If he yeah. hits his forehand like he did in the second half of the year, because honestly, I, I have good things to say about the forehand in Canada and, and Cincinnati. It wasn't just the indoor season. Um, he has my attention. I got to say, just because for me, it was always pretty simple. Don't talk to me about Hercotch until he improves his forehand. I mean, that's pretty much where I stood. I'm, I'm exaggerating, but yeah, I think the forehand got better. Let's that go was two to- sentences, by the way, out of me. I consider that one long run on with a period right in the center. Good job. I'm proud of you. Uh, Taylor Fritz, number 10. What is, what is realistic for Fritz? Uh, this was, I'm just gonna, this isn't, this next part isn't a question, but I'm just going to say it. It was weird because, you know, last year wins a 1000 and it feels like that's the centerpiece of his year, right? Mm -hmm. This year, very opposite. The the big events were not how he got his rankings points. He crushed it at two fifties. He won a lot of two fifties in the U S especially and that's why he finished number 10. So now I'm kind of coming into this season. It's kind of like, I don't know, like wh- how do you even measure Taylor Fritz? What's realistic for him? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. And to your point for Taylor, I think he made 13 quarterfinals this year. Alcaraz made 13, Medvedev made 14. That's the most on the ATP tour. He just strikes a ball so beautifully. And to his credit, he has minimized his weaknesses. He is so much better as a mover half a decade later than when he first entered the tour. He is, you know, he's always had the ability to hit the big serve in the big moment. He's always struck the ball flawlessly from the baseline, forehand, backhand, wing. He knows when he should come forward to the net now. The success rate is better than it used to be. Still, no one will ever accuse Taylor Fritz of being good at volleying. (laughs) What's his ceiling? I mean, still, the problem is there is a point athletically where he does hit his ceiling, where if your weapons are big enough, you can still get him stretched in the outer thirds in ways that are problems. His quarterfinal for showing at the U.S. Open this year was really impressive, and then he got spanked by Djokovic in that quarterfinal. 8 to 15 feels like a really good range for Taylor through his career, where, yes, there will be some weeks, particularly a two out of three format, where he can just overwhelm you with how well he strikes a tennis ball. But I do think this is... If this is where he's at for the rest of his prime, it's a really good outcome for Taylor Fritz moving forward. A guy who was a top junior in the world, junior slam champion, it's panned out in the pros. I completely agree. And he's going to keep working on his volleys. Let's see if he ever makes progress. It's very I, controllable. I, well, look, I, I, he he does work on it. I mean, he yeah. will tell you. I, I work on it, and I know he also knows he's bad in, in that area. Like, he's very well aware. Absolutely. Um, and we'll, we'll see if that ever gets better. What I do think is in his control and what I do think is an adjustment he will make and should make next year, play less, like actually manage your schedule so you try to peak at the big events because I, I know he wants to do better at majors. I know he wants to do better at 1,000s, and uh, he, he plays a ton. And uh, I, I'm just wondering if maybe he will – he likes that, but I think he needs to relent and play less, all right? I think that's fair. Casper Rude. Bad year, major final, Roland Garros final. I think those two things need to be true at the same time. So I I think if you honestly root as a guy right now where you're going to get, like if you read a a comment section or Twitter, you're going to get some people being like, no, he's just not that good. 
Like he's he's not the guy the, that was number two in the world. Uh, then you're going to see some people who are going to give him a, a lot more slack than that. He's young, still skilled. And I, I mean, my question is super, super simple. And I don't know where else to go. Like, how good do you think Casper Ruud is? It's a fascinating question coming out of this offseason because coming out of last season, the question was, would 2022 be his peak? A year where he reached world number two, he made two slam finals. That's a hell of a peak for any player in pro tennis history. You know, the backhand is what it is. It's not a weakness by any stretch of the imagination. It's never going to be a weapon as well. And he does a better job now playing the slice with better depth, turning things down the line. He also lost a bunch of tight three-set matches that were really fun matches down the season's home stretch. That said, Casper comes out of 2024 as someone who on the report card, the parents say, or the teacher says, hey, we'd like to meet with your parents, please. And they come in and they're all concerned about Casper. And they'd say, look, your son is still extraordinarily talented. When he shows up, we know he's going to make the quarterfinals. He's going to make the semifinals. He's not going to take a bad loss. But, man, there are some weeks where he just is sleeping in class each and every week. And he, the first two months, he was asleep. And we think he missed out on how to write in cursive. And, like, that was Kasparud's 2023. It was so incomplete from the start that, you know, again, even through all of that, he made another slam final. And no one would accuse him of playing his best tennis in the run-up to that French Open. And yet, physically, how he moves the ball, I've said it before, it's a mortal Rafael Nadal on clay courts, particularly that surface at Roland Garros. I I'm still wondering what his ceiling is. Because, again, if you ask me straight up, I think Djokovic, Alcaraz, Medvedev, Sinner, they're all better players. I think Zverev at his best is better than Kasparud at his best, and yet Kasparud destroyed him in the French Open this year. So I, it's an open question. How good is Kasparud? And I still don't know the answer. Yeah, I, I don't think he's a top fiver. Um, and a lot of it is just his makeup. That's the that's the one thing that— What do you mean? I, I don't see—like, you're right that sometimes there was some— uh, it, it just didn't seem like he was locked in. But I think when he goes up against top guys, you know, resignation sets in. Uh, there's not as much killer instinct as I want. And if if you want, if you if you want me to explain like what does that look like on the court, I mean, one thing is just are you going for it? Uh, are you being offensive and being audacious in any way? Um, and like I love percentage tennis. But Rude also has some defensive issues, especially on his backhand. Like, you have to take control. You have to play large and charge with, with your forehand. And if you can't mentally bring yourself to do that, um, I, I just think it tells me that you are uh, not expecting to win, plain and simple. So I, I think Rude is, is a very uh, mature guy, calm guy, level-headed, but is he a, a killer? I think it's a fair question to ask. You look for Kasparud this season statistically. The thing that fell off compared to last year was the serve. Like the hold percentage just wasn't yeah. where it needed to be. The first serve win percentage in particular, he just wasn't as effective with that first serve, first forehand combo. It's because people knew to look for it in a way they didn't in prior years. And you wonder sure. if that's an issue for him. Well, question is that because I know you're looking at it right now. Is the ace rate down? The was ace the percentage down as well, 1.2%. Versus what was it last year? Seven. Uh, it was down to six point three this year. Was seven point five last year. All right. Still top half Decent. number. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Decently significant. Because I was going to say, is it the server? Is it the forehand? Part of me think thinks. But I think it's both. But part of me thinks 
Some of it is the four. Well, I also think people know his spots better. Like he loves to hit the slingshot T on the ad side. That's the one he sneaks on you after giving you the healthy diet of kick serves wide to set up a first forehand anywhere. He'll hit that slingshot T when you're not ready for it. I think on the ad on the deuce side, he's pretty heavy kicks to the T to set up a first forehand inside out. And I think that deuce side serve is the one that's really hurt him because I just don't think he has the variety on that side in the way he really uh, like his ad side serving portfolio is exceptional mm-hmm. it's the I, this is very nerdy i apologize this I is why if, if this show turned into two parts it's answers like this that are why <laughs> but i just think like the playbook is out like there's some stat bank somewhere that says look he's going body kick serve on the do side 75 percent of the time on big points so i just think people sit on that better than they did in the past alex timonor big year best since what 2019 or best period best best ever okay new career high right um does it get any better than this i think that's the question with him you're spot on could not agree with you more that is the question and demon hour was a guy i had circled as one of the players who 2023 was a make or break year for because i thought he had plateaued in that 18 to 25 range in the rankings where look, he's going to make a fourth round at a hard court major. Look, he's going to make a quarterfinal at a masters 1000, maybe on grass courts that it doesn't exist, but 500s on grass courts, 1000s on hard courts. He's going to exist significantly in those portions of the seasons, but can he ever make it to a final round of one of those big events? Can he win a big event like that? Take things to the next step, even if it's not on clay courts, just can he be elite on any surface? And he was elite on hard courts in 2023. He was top five in wins on the surface. He makes a final of a Masters in Canada. He wins what was one of the more thrilling matches, that Mexico final back in February with Tommy Paul, that what, three and a half hour, three setter, whatever it was. And Tommy had played Fritz the match before in another marathon, what was, again, a really fun event. Is there another gear to Demon Hour who has gotten better on the serve. He just manufactures more pace than he used to. He's thicker than he used to without compromising that world-class speed. The backhand has better depth than it used to, and I actually think that side now absorbs pace better than his forehand wing. That said, yes, the forehand can be a mess technically, but if you give him time on that forehand wing now, there is no you know, third gear. He turns that thing up to gear number one and he can unleash on it as a real weapon on a hard court, maybe even on a grass court as well. Is that enough? That's the question. And because I just, the technique's not changing and that forehand is just limited. It just is. And so like, if he's not going to make the tour finals this year, when Holgeruna limps in to that another eight spot, is there another world where hypothetically everyone continues to get better, where there's an outcome better than this? I turn that question to you, Gilbros. Yeah, I don't think it gets much better than what we saw. And I, top I think five it, in break percentage this year, like it was yeah. perfect. Look, what I would have wanted to see because he had so many great runs this year, he had a lot of fantastic weeks. What I really would have needed to see for me to change what I think about Dimonor and and rethink the possibilities is like in these big matches against top players, he doesn't need to win them. Uh, he just needed to play them better. Uh, he lost 6-2, 6-1, 6-2 against Djokovic in Australia. Uh, 
I'll I'll skip ahead to should we just do the majors? Um, no. Let's, well, U.S. Let's Open it was four set loss to Medvedev as well. It's like he got but, to the point where he played the best players, but then he lost to the best players. Right, but Medvedev is a guy who he matches up really well against, and sure, beat him in Canada. Yep, and he lost the last two sets of that match, six one, six two. He plays the Canada final against Sinner. He lost six four, six one. Again, I, I don't need him like Tsitsipas and Los Cabos three and four. I don't need him to win these matches. I, I really don't. I, I understand that that's a level that look, it's hard, but in order for me to be like, no, Demonor is going to go up from here. I just would have needed to see him take it to those guys in those matches. Is that yeah. fair? A hundred percent in the stat I would point to, he's 11 and 29 in his career on hard courts against top 10 players, five and six this year. Right. So that's a yeah. significant improvement for Alex Demonauer. The biggest reason why he had that success wasn't actually the serve itself. It was the return of service break percentage jumped five percentage points against top 10 opponents this season. The serve is a controllable, and I do think he has gotten better at that shot foundationally. But you're right, like his pathway to free points is just always going to be more difficult than a top ranked peer that he is facing. He may have Medvedev's fluidity and flexibility. He can't crank 135 down the tee at will the way Medvedev can to bail himself out of jams. Same thing with the Zverev, who I actually think isn't a bad comparison either. Like Zverev a little bit more aggressive when he's dominating you from a baseline, but you think about two guys who are a little bit more responsive or reactive than proactive. He doesn't have the Zverev 75% first serve percentage and 130 bombs to lean upon either. Again, back to the Rublev question. What is your expectation for a player? Is Alex Diemenauer ever going to have to work a second job in his career? I think no, the no. answer is going to be no. He's Do fine. I think this is his ceiling? I worry the answer is yes. And it's a higher ceiling than I expected, but I do think this was the ceiling because it's hard to imagine things breaking better for him than it did this year. Yeah. Okay. We agree. By the way, on the serve, yes, he's not tall, but also his technique is funky on the serve too, uh, which doesn't really help his cause. But he's um, gotten thick. Can we agree? Like talk yeah, about a guy who strong. put on 15 pounds of muscle and didn't get slower. Like God willing, if only I could do that. <laughs> Number 13, Tommy Paul. And that'll do it for part one, everybody. Remember, part two will be released in a couple of days, Monday to be exact, where Gruskin and I will continue to go through each and every player in the ATP top 30. And then a couple of players who we have to talk about, not in the top 30, Rafael Nadal and Nick Kyrgios. So make sure you don't miss that. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. New New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.